Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, as always, Trey Whetstone, and today we're going to close our chapter on the rise of Euro horror, which, as you'll remember, is covering European horror from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and a little bit of the 80s as well. Today, I'm going to talk about Spain and that early Spanish horror. I feel like if we're talking about, I feel if we're talking about horror in Europe at the time, Spain kind of goes unnoticed by and large. There's a lot of stuff that they put out, and I would say there's only a couple handfuls of films that are really talked about, maybe not even that much, and even some of the ones that are, we're not really aware that they are Spanish horror films. So let's go ahead and turn your books to chapter 2, page 5, as we close out our rise of Euro horror with the horror of Spain. Now, this is going to be an episode of two parts. First, I am going to talk about the history of film in Spain by and large, um, just very broad overview, and we'll get into what the country went through and the kind of turmoil they were going through, and a little bit of the background on their film industry. In the second half, I have went through and I believe have watched about 17 Spanish horror films over the past couple weeks and will be doing some mini reviews of those films. A lot of those being pretty much deep cuts. Some of them I had never even heard of before doing this episode. I had never even heard of some of the directors. But I've got a good list. It's not all-encompassing. I didn't have time to do something like that. There were definitely ones I didn't get to but a pretty good list if you want an introduction into Spanish horror or really kind of continuing your education on Spanish horror if you want some broad overview of some more well-known Spanish horror films. Dave uh, Becker and I had talked about those on episode 5, and I think there's some good ones in there, but they're definitely some of the more well-known Spanish horror films. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get started here with the history of Spanish film. Now, the Spanish film industry got its start in the late 1800s. Um, The first movies made in Spain came to light in 1897, and they would really continue at a good pace until the end of the silent era. Unfortunately, Spain was late to the game when it came to movies with sound. The first international movies with sound started arriving in the country in 1931, and it really devastated the Spanish film industry they were still producing silent films. And that's a big thing, right? You've got this new technology coming in with sound in movies, and you can't really compete with those silent era films, especially right when they're breaking out. Like, the the hype around those had to be pretty massive. And you've got these international films coming in, and all these movies coming in with sound. All the while, you've just got silent films still coming in from your home country and your home... Um, directors and writers and everything like that. An important name to know here is Manuel Casanova. He stepped up to the plate and founded the Campania Industrial Film Española S.A., or the Spanish Industrial Film Company Incorporated, and that acronym is C-I-F-E-S-A. So Cefesa helped to introduce sound to Spanish filmmakers and would help to support many young Spanish filmmakers. It would also grow to become one of the largest production companies that Spain would ever have. 
1936, everything changed as one of the most well-known civil wars in the history of the world began between the nationalist insurrectionists, who counted Francisco Franco among them, and the Republicans who were loyal to the current Republic of Spain, along with those from the Communist Party in Spain. So you've got those two sides clashing, very much different ideals. Um, you've got very much an authoritarian standpoint on one side, definitely more conservative-leaning, and then you've got a much more uh, liberal side taking them on, and really that was the that was pretty much what was going around in Europe at that time, and you know you would see that in World War II, is a lot of it are um, these conflicts between, you know, fascist and fascism and communist and communism. And you saw that play out in a lot of countries, Germany no less, you know, but they, you know, sent their communist over to Russia to lead a revolution. Um, so there was a lot of turmoil going on in Europe around this time. Now, this took place before World War II, we'll get into that in a little bit, but that was kind of the background and it was a pretty terrifying time, especially in Spain, because as we would see later with films that were done by Guillermo del Toro, is it's pretty it's pretty bad for just the standard people trying to make a life in Spain at that time with this civil war raging. And it's funny, I think Guillermo had mentioned that no one had really, it took all those years later, from the 1930s to when he started making Devil's Backbone in 2001 for someone to really make, he felt, um, a movie about the Civil War because it was so much of a pain point for the country. Okay, got a little sidetracked there, but getting back, the ramifications of this war, like I was saying, uh, didn't only influence the Spanish film industry, but the world as a whole as World War II kind of loomed over everyone's head. This would by many, be seen as a dress rehearsal for the war. You've just got different countries putting their fingers in the different interest of everyone trying to get their side to win and get power in these countries that were having, you know, kind of civil wars and revolutions at the time. That's pretty standard practice of people, the quote-unquote allies, when really they just want the outcome that they want in the country. So how does this affect film? Well, Film was no longer a form of entertainment in Spain. Now, they got Cifesa, and they had just caught up with the rest of the world. They've got this sound technology. But now their films were going to be used as propaganda. And I'm not trying to say either side was right in this war, because I think, as many people have said, both sides were doing pretty bad things. And the same is true with propaganda films, is both sides were using films as propaganda during the war. And it was just no longer seen as a venue for entertainment purposes. So, much like, again, Germany as well at the time, films were used to stoke certain feelings within people and try to get them to believe in your cause, essentially, is what they're trying to do. Well, what this caused was many actors in Spain, they'd go into exile, and they would have nothing to do with the film industry that was going on in Spain, um, they would leave the country. Uh, not a good time. But it would get even worse. The result of the war was that the nationalists, led by Francisco Franco, would take over and it would begin a new period of authoritarian government in Spain that would control everything, including the film industry. And under this period, one of the things was that Franco would 
impose kind of mandatory dubs for anything coming into the country. Um, We'll get into that a little bit later. But he also kind of fostered this heavy censorship policy. And I think that went across the board, not just with movies. But there weren't really guidelines. I know... Um, you talk about a film like Censor when we're talking about the video nasties, which th- that's to a little bit of a lesser extent than this. That's not quite the same thing. But you see kind of it's up to a censor to pass or fail a film. And you kind of have that here in Spain, too. There weren't any set guidelines of, hey, you have to keep this out. You have to keep that out. Um, make sure this is in there. But this left a lot of power up to the individual censors. And they can make changes to films based on their own opinions, really, of what they thought were bad. And again, these were ultra conservative people. So you can imagine, um, I mean, the same with the Video Nasty movement, right? Um, So you can imagine how strict they were when cutting these films. Things as slight as, you know, theft and divorce were being edited out of films to protect people and not influence that uh, type of behavior, I guess, (laughs) which is crazy to think of those kind of things setting off censors and being removed from movies. Films were also expected to, first and foremost, appeal to a Spanish audience. They weren't really concerned about, you know, their films appealing to the outside world. They just wanted to make sure that you were, you know, it's all about Spain. It's that nationalistic feeling like Spain is the center of the world and we need to act like it. Now, I don't actually mind this one as much. Only because I feel international films are best when they stay true to their culture. Especially at that time, you've got other countries. And it kind of lead to the downfall of a lot of these countries in Europe as far as their, um, as far as like the world cinema goes. Because even with something like Spaghetti Westerns, you still have that Italian feel to them. And, you know, you've got Giallos. And they've got an Italian feel to them. Everything, even like the crime movies that are coming out, in Europe and zombie movies, they've got an Italian feel. But when these countries started to appeal to international audiences because that's where a lot of the money was, you kind of get into some issues and you start to lose the feeling of what made your film feel like something from your country. And we would see that over and over again. So I don't like the specifically imposing on someone and any kind of like mandate or expectation that, hey, this has to fall in line with what we believe or what we, you can't have anything we would deem as harmful. But really, from my perspective, you should be able to make the film you want to make first and foremost. Now, there are always different obstacles that are going to get in your way, and that's not necessarily realistic all the time. It is more so now than it's ever been before. But first and foremost... I do believe in the filmmakers setting out to reach their goal and setting out to make the film or the piece of art that they want to make. Because if they're not, if we're just doing this by committee thing where we're making films, it doesn't work. You've seen it time and time again. It just does not work. Sure, you can pump something out that's going to make millions and millions and millions of dollars, as we've seen. But there has to be some heart in there and there has to be some intent, usually. And again, the films that try to do this usually don't fare well at the box office. But I would rather have a more slight film that a filmmaker wants to make than them to be influenced by any outside sources and kind of get their film stolen away from them. And we saw that all the time, especially with cuts around this period. We saw that a lot with Spanish films going over to America and Italian films going over to America. 
they would release different versions, you know, under a different title with 15 minutes cut off. There's one specifically, and I'll talk about that later, as it was shopped to America, they did a number on that film. As I mentioned earlier, all non-Spanish language movies were required to be dubbed into Spanish, or they faced being banned in the country. Now, I don't know how much pressure that puts on anyone. Oh, your film won't play in Spain if you don't dub it into Spanish. I mean, certainly you want to get your film everywhere, especially the bigger films. But is Spain a huge enough market for you to... And I don't know how the logistics go in this and who's paying the dubbing fees on this because these dubbing studios were in Spain. So maybe maybe it's not a big deal for the, for the American and the British and Italian companies or so on and so forth to just have their films dubbed uh, by these people in Spain. Maybe it's not a huge deal. I don't know. But regardless, we do know that the Spanish dubbers who were in charge of dubbing and do their native tongue uh, took advantage of this and would change and remove pieces they found inappropriate, um, resulting in a lack of direct dubs. And you really can see this all over. I mean, this isn't this isn't a uniquely Spanish thing. It's just that Spain was kind of mandating this policy. But how many times have we seen this where an English version of a film, the English language version, isn't complete? I mean, you see that even with something like Deep Red, where they added additional scenes, and those scenes are still in Italian, because they don't have any English versions of those. They were cut out of the film. So, so you see that a lot. The version they dub is not going to have all the complete source material a lot of the time. Some Spanish filmmakers were looking at this, and they didn't want to risk losing any money and they made sure to comply with the rules before it even got to the censors. So again, you've got it creeping in, where I do not like this, that these filmmakers are consciously thinking about what they can and can't put in their film because they want their films out there and they don't want to lose any money. That's a scary world to live in where, why are you doing it then? If you can't make films you want to make, um, if you can't say the things you want to say or express the messages you want to express... Why are you even making films? And it begs the question, and it's really a really scary thing to think about. We haven't had to live within a lot of that in the United States. Of course, we've had the protests over films, um, things like Silent Night, Deadly Night, and the like. But we've never had to get someone with their fingers all over the films outside of the film industry itself. Now, that does happen in the film industry itself, of course. But one good thing about the MPAA, or I guess now the MPA as it's referred to, um, and that's the Motion Picture Association of America, one good thing about them, if we can say something good about them, because, you know, they're not always kind. Um, you know, Steven Spielberg can put whatever he wants in his movie and probably get a PG-13, whereas an indie movie could be rated R for disturbing images. So, yeah, it's not always fair, but as a lobbyist organization, they are a trade organization that lobbies has lobbyist interest in Washington. The one good thing about them controlling ratings, and this is the same in um, video games with the ESRB rating system, um, is they keep the government out of our films. You know, when they're established, they're established to basically take the heat off of the film industry from lawmakers and legislators and all of that. They're out there to say, hey, we've got a rating system, it's widely known, it's widely adhered to, you don't have to come in and do anything to these films. It's scary business when the government can come in and edit films and any other kind of art as they feel free to. So next time 
you have any gripes with the MPAA or anything like that, just remember they are there to create a buffer and they are there to keep the film industry, to keep the government out of our film industry and should be applauded for that. Luckily, during the 1960s, we would see a loosening of Franco's grip on the Spanish film industry. We have this figure, Jose Maria Garcia Escudero, and he would become the director of Spanish cinema in 1962. Under Escudero, they established the Spanish School of Cinema, which he helped to kind of push out, which produced many new Spanish directors, um, and a lot of those were left-leaning politically who opposed Franco and his dictatorship. Alumni of this include Claudio Guerin and Juan Antonio Bardem, who we'll talk about later when we get into the films. But this is very important. We've got a new school established in the 60s, and you're bringing up what is essentially going to be the next wave of Spanish filmmakers, and a lot of them are left-leaning, and even if they're not left-leaning, a lot of them are opposed to the current regime. When you start building that foundation, um, you can start to see some creativity arise in something that's been stifled for so long. Throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Spain worked with several countries to produce films, uh, many including cast and crew of several different nationalities. A lot of times, you had Spanish directors making films in different languages. That's a key thing we would see in Spain with collaborating with Italy and Germany and France and all these surrounding countries. And I think that really helped Spain out a lot because collaborations are a big thing. We still see a lot of collaborations in Europe. You'll see a film that comes out and it's got two or three different countries in it and they're working together on it. And I think you see that a lot. You see that with Guillermo del Toro uh, when we get into the aughts. He's from Mexico, but he's setting a couple of his films in Spain and working with Spanish crew. And it's really a co-production there. So that's kind of the what Spain is trying to do at the time is they're working with other countries doing collaborations, and trying to get films out there. We, again, like I said, we started to see a little bit of the grip loosening in the 60s, and it seemed like, really, things get a little less strict going into the 70s, even more so. And then, of course, in 1975, Franco dies, and the country had a newfound freedom, um, including the lessening of censorship across the board. The interesting thing about that is that the most saturated period of Spanish horror happened either before or a couple years after Franco's death. Once the 80s hit, the output really drops off significantly. You know, we see a few horror films from the great Paul Nashi, who we will talk about, and Juan Piquer Simon, who i also briefly talk about. Um, and he steps in and does, you know, pieces which is pretty well known, and then Slugs, which is, um, Slugs is something, yeah, but the, those two films, um, not exactly my cup of tea, but, um, and then of course you've got Jess Franco, Jesus Franco, who would continue his standard volume of output, but that's nothing compared to the variety we saw in the 70s and the different directors, and I have a couple thoughts of this, because really this is the golden age of Spanish horror film. It really is. And it might be the golden age of Spanish film altogether. Um, and when, remember, when we talk about... It's important when we talk about the golden age. It's not necessarily talking about the best time. Because I think you could argue that the current era 
in Spanish film is better than what we were getting in the 70s. I think you have a fair argument for that. But it was just that first period of breakthrough horror films in Spain. And the, I mean, just the amount of films we got, of horror films we got out of Spain. Now, a lot of them were not great. And you're going to see that. I went through some torture (laughs) watching some of these movies. Um, Not really torture, but just a lot of boring films to get to kind of the good stuff. But there's a lot of good stuff nestled in there. But it's kind of funny. It almost makes sense when you look at this as a whole. I know I've talked a lot about The House That Screamed um, by Narciso Abana Cerador. And The House That Screamed is a very weird film in that it kind of feels like a TV movie at points. It was made in 1969, so under Franco's regime. And whenever there's a kill about to happen, you see kind of these cuts. I think a lot of time, I can't remember exactly how much violence is in this film, but I don't think a whole lot of on-screen violence is in this film. Now, the film is very disturbing at its core, and the end kind of uh, reveal is pretty shocking and disturbing. But again, you're not seeing a whole lot. It's more of like a subject matter thing. And I guess maybe it's easier to get that through the censors, but even getting that through the censors, I think, was a win. And then you see Serador go back and do Who Could Kill a Child, Who Can Kill a Child, in 1976, after Franco, and that one doesn't really hold back. There's no cuts in that one as far as, like, cutting away from the violence. You're seeing these people mow down children. Um, (laughs) But it's very weird you can kind of see the two different eras distinctly in that director, I think. But still, most of the films I'm going to talk about tonight took place in the 70s. So during Franco's regime and not too long afterwards. It's just very interesting. Very interesting. Anyway, as I mentioned, we would not see another breakthrough um, until the mid-90s, really, when we would see this next great crop of Spanish filmmakers rise up, which in my eyes, anyway, um, lead to the greatest period of Spanish horror. And that continues throughout today. I think from the mid-90s, when you start getting to people like um, Alex de la Iglesia, Alejandro Amenabar, you know, I I guess you can say Guillermo del Toro, he was from Mexico, though. I treat Guillermo as a Mexican filmmaker. And of course, Mexico would have its own kind of boom, we're talking Spanish language, there in the late 80s and into the 90s. But that's topic for another day. But then you get into things with like Wreck and Sleep Tight and all these different Spanish films, Skin I Live In, all that kind of stuff that crops up in the aughts to the you know 2010s. I think we just have a lot of good Spanish horror coming out now. So that for my money is the best quality wise. But there's a lot of good stuff that's buried down in this early Spanish film. But you've got to ask yourself, going back to this, why does production of horror suddenly slow down when the country gets the most freedom it's had in a long time? Um, Is it that old adage of, you know, horror thrives when the times are most dire and turbulent, as we kind of see now? You know, because there's definitely laws in horror, especially in American films. We've just talked about one in the 50s and 60s for the most part is horror films kind of take a break. They're not really putting out that content, and they don't really become the leaders of the industry again until the mid-70s and the 80s. And then they once again take a backseat. It's all cyclical. So is that maybe why what's happening? You know, they finally have their newfound freedom. They Times aren't as tough. People aren't living in fear as much anymore. I don't know. 
Now, they also had a heavy reliance on co-productions, as I spoke about, across Europe. And by 1980, the balance of power, like we said, had shifted back to North America with the slasher movement um, that was rising in the U.S. and Canada. And, you know, then we have the fall of Hammer and the decline of the Giallo movement. So maybe the horror market in Europe as a whole was just starting to dry up. And where before they would reach out and do some co-productions, maybe that those opportunities aren't there anymore. You know, just could be the change in the times. Um, not to say we wouldn't see any notable releases from, from the continent uh, in the 80s, because there are some of the best Italian horror films um, that came out of that decade. It's just, you could definitely tell where things were going. You know, things are trends. Things go in cycles, things go in trends. Where one thing is popular one day, you know, where gothic horror is killing it in Italy and England uh, one day, maybe a few years later, that's dead. And one of the biggest film production companies, as far as like classical horror films with Hammer, just goes belly up. And it's hard to see those things coming, especially, you know, a decade ahead of time. And it's the same with the slasher thing, really. We see the giallo crop up. And really, yes, we have giallo films in the 60s. We have German giallo films even earlier than the late 60s and all of that stuff. But really... The one that kicked off and made Giallos what they were and what we would know today was Argento's Bird with the Crystal Plumage. And with that one, it's like you have to take notice of what's going on, and now everyone's suddenly chasing that trend. The result of that is that, for the most part, by 1975, a mere five years later, the Giallo would dry up, and that would be pretty much the end of the saturation that we saw in the early 70s. I mean, 71 was just littered with Gialli. And, yeah, it's just... And we see the same thing with the slashers, right? The slashers pretty much mirror what happened with the Giallos, except Italy was quicker to turn around and react, I think, than America was. You get Halloween in 78, really is what kicked it off. We're not going to get into the debate about proto-slashers and all that stuff, and I consider some of those proto-slashers to be slashers, but uh, 78 sets up the formula, kicks it off, and then by 1980, we pretty much hit the ground running and slashers dominate a lot of American horror film um, for about four or five years. And then, you know, you still have slashers, of course, just like you still have giallos coming out in the late 80s. But the clear peak of that industry is gone by that time. So <sighs> anyway, we may never really know for sure what caused Spain's horror industry to kind of slow down and cease. And you might not even notice. Like I said, a lot of these films, and I'm going to be talking about a decent amount of films, you might not even know about, so you might think, oh, well, Spain only had a few anyway. And again, things like Pieces and Horror Express, which we will talk about, and Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, a lot of people think that those are not Spanish films. So... It's easy to kind of see how someone wouldn't from the outside think that Spain really did have a boom at this time, but they did. It just maybe wasn't as well known because it's harder to get films out of Spain. Trust me, we'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, but you can see how all these things are interconnected. Everything within the horror industry, with every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Every little domino that falls within the horror industry causes a ripple throughout it and would influence what is to come. And that's the important thing about getting your history straight on horror and horror movies is once you know kind of what led to where we are, I think you have a better understanding, a better appreciation for the genre. And that's that's the main reason why I'm doing this. So 
I could sit here and wax poetic about history and horror history and connecting the dots all day, but let's go ahead and put this history of Spanish film to rest uh, for now, and we will move into my Spanish horror mini-review extravaganza. Okay, so with these mini-reviews, I'm going to talk about some more than I will others, for sure. I went through a lot of garbage over the last couple weeks, but there's some hidden gems in here and some good stuff in here, so definitely looking forward to talking about the good ones, at least. I think I ended up with 18 or maybe 19. We'll see if I end up discussing another film as we go down through. But these really range from, you know, overlooked to downright obscure and hard to find. A lot of these I had issues just tracking down and finding a decent version of it, and especially one that at least had subtitles if it was um, in another language. We'll get into some of the Jess Franco stuff, but I tried to find a couple of more Jess Franco films, and I just couldn't find them anywhere with subtitles. So a couple of ones I really wanted to see, I couldn't see. Similarly with the way Spain forced any outside country to dub movies. Um, we see a lot of these Spanish movies with English dubs going on, and they're usually pretty terrible, uh, as is to be expected, but a lot of times it didn't hurt my enjoyment of the movie. After all, I kind of got my introduction into giallos through English dubs of those giallos, and a lot of times they're not great. But let's go ahead and get started with one of the more well-known of this group, and that would be Horror Express. Uh, I tried to watch Horror Express a while back, and the transfer was just really bad. I could hardly make out anything that was going on on the screen. So, but then I, so I just kind of abandoned it. And then I heard from so many people that, no, it's a good movie. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I need to go back and finally revisit it in a good form. And I did find a decent print of this one. So... Let's get into Horror Express. So this is from 1972, and there's not going to be a whole lot of rhyme or reason as I go down through these. Sometimes I will group directors or certain topics or things like that, but not a whole lot of rhyme or reason other than that. So Horror Express released in 1972 by Eugenio Martin, and the synopsis reads, Mysterious and unhealthy deaths start to occur while Professor Saxton is transporting the frozen remains of a primitive humanoid creature he found in Manchuria back to Europe. That kind of tells you what you need to know. Um, this film has Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in somewhat of adversarial roles, at least for a little while in the film. But they do start to come around, and they are joined in the cast by the captivating Sylvia Tortosa. But yeah, this film is, you know, Christopher Lee's shipping this giant container that's kind of sealed up and no one knows what's in it from Manchuria back west to Europe. And Cushing also happens to be on the train. They're both kind of these historian slash archaeologist figures, if I'm remembering correctly. I know Lee is, at least. But what we have here is basically, you know, a creature feature. And a pretty interesting one at that. And the effects in this film are really interesting as well. Now, I I would say that a lot of people probably, probably think, like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, that this is an English film, but it is most certainly directed by Martine, I really like the monster. I think it's a great monster that they designed it. I think it's 
an incredible way that it dispatches of its victims. Um, I think it's amazing what it does there. It's just so unique and not something I've really seen a whole lot before. And it's a pretty good story in general. And you end up liking some of the characters, especially the Countess or Baroness, I believe, played by Tortosa. And the third act of this really goes completely off the rails. And I thoroughly enjoyed every minute of that. Not a whole lot I want to say about this film, just that because a lot of people probably know more about this film. But I would say it's a classic of Spanish cinema, and it's definitely worth your time. This is probably one of the ones I liked the most out of this entire group. Uh, But again, also one of the more well-knowns, which is why I wanted to start with it. So if you haven't checked out Horror Express, make sure you check out Horror Express. Now prior to Horror Express, Martin also did a film called A Candle for the Devil in 1973. The synopsis for this one is uh, two sisters running a small hotel in Spain kill female tourists whose morals do not meet their strict religious standards. It's a pretty good setup when we're talking about this movie. I like the way it begins. It um, begins with kind of this girl who's staying at their, I guess it's like a boarding house hotel type thing. You've got these two old like prudish sisters who are very religious. And one of their guests is up on the roof uh, sunbathing naked. And the boys across the, the way are just hooting and hollering. And it's just really cool that they like take her down. And... At this point, there's sort of like an accident that happens, and it leads them down a path that kind of just spirals out of control to the one sister thinking basically that she can control the morals of others and take out their rage on these people who are immoral. And there's really no limit to where they go on this one. Like, they don't stop at any scenario. If she disagrees with your morals or your background, you're probably going to die. Now... The problem with this movie, because it's an interesting premise, and I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, and I think that there's some good characters and whatnot. I think the story kind of falls short at some point. The main problem, though, is I couldn't find a good cut of this movie outside of buying um, the physical version from Kino Lorber, or maybe it was even Kino Lorber streaming. But the version that I had was 10 minutes shorter than the original, and it cut away any time there was any kind of nudity or violence. So it, it's really hard for me to take a look at a horror film when they kind of cut around that stuff. It's said there's actually a longer X-rated cut that um, screened at one point. So I can only imagine what I missed out on. I think that one only screened once and was never seen again. So, But probably gets pretty gruesome. Um, In the version I saw, and the version I think is pretty widely available, not a lot happens in that realm, and it seems like it was all cut out of there. Other than that, I mean, the movie's okay. I wish I saw the longer cut, but I still don't know if it's worth going out and just buying this thing, especially if you haven't seen it. I, I just don't know if I could tell someone to put down their money on something like this. But, I mean, that's up to you, ultimately, if you do want to see this film, if that sounds interesting, and you want to see the longer cut then go for it. Other than that, I'd say this is probably worth like a one-time watch. If you can track down that unedited version, I think that'd be best. Okay, next up, and it's funny, I didn't realize I was doing this, but I'm kind of going backwards in Martin's filmography, because next we're going to talk about The Fourth Victim from 1971. 
Uh, that synopsis reads, A man's wife is found suspiciously drowned in their swimming pool, and because his two previous wives also died strange deaths, he is charged with murder and only gets off because his motherly housekeeper lies to clear his name. When a pretty blonde woman shows up and starts flirting with him, it's clear from the start that she may not be who she seems to be. Right off the bat, this might sound like a giallo. I think it is giallo light. Um, Spain did do, um, you know, their own giallo style films, but I think they differ a lot from what we were used to in Italy. But yeah, this is like a giallo light. There's definitely some giallo elements in it. Again, you've got a widower who has lost his previously his previous two wives and then we see in the opening film that it seems like something kind of strange is going on with the death of this third one so we don't really know what to think by the time this new wife comes into the picture is he going to murder her and i think there's the suspicion is that that he's you know with his previous wives it's kind of inferred that he married them and murdered them for their large insurance policies. Each time, the insurance policy was bigger. And you gotta be thinking at this point, like, this guy's probably got enough money. He doesn't need to... <laughs> if he is doing this, he probably doesn't need to murder his fourth wife, right? And, I mean, they do seem happy together. The mystery and story are good in this film, and the characters, including this kind of off-kilter police inspector, are really well done. But there's really not too much to the horror-thriller action going on. It's really like a police kind of procedural courtroom type thing in the first chunk of this film and it started out really promising uh, but in the end it's just a little dull for me and doesn't have too much of a satisfying conclusion I mean there's definitely some kind of reveal at the end this being a mystery film but I just don't think there's a whole lot for horror fans now Giallo fans might find a lot here to like but it's a middle of the road film to me and maybe worth a one-time watch if you're interested in this type of topic. Moving right along, we have a rewatch for me, which was The Corruption of Chris Miller. This is directed by Juan Antonio Bardem, and this is another of those takes on Spanish Giallo, on Spanish Giallo films. Uh, this was released in 1973. So again, every film we've talked about before is pre-Franco's death. To set this one up, Chris Miller lives with her stepmother Ruth in a large secluded mansion in the countryside. Both women have been traumatized by the mysterious disappearance of Chris's father, but their isolation is soon interrupted by the arrival of a mysterious young drifter, Barney, who they take on as a handyman. All the while, an unknown scythe-wielding killer has been stalking the area, leaving an ever-growing body count, and it's not long before the women grow increasingly suspicious of Barney. The problem with that synopsis is it overhypes the scythe-wielding killer. We don't get too much of that, really. You know, it starts out with a very exciting scene, very good cold open. Then it reverts into more of a drama for a good chunk of this film. When we finally do get to check back in with our killer, the killer is portrayed pretty cool. The killer is wearing this rain jacket that's got the hood up over um, the head. You can't really see the face. The one house he goes to, you know, the boy mistakes him for a monk. So you can kind of get the idea of what the killer's dressed like. And the killer does have this cool sickle as a murder weapon. And there's a really cool scene later on where this murderer is just kind of unleashed and we get to see it. But there's not a whole lot in terms of violence. And after that scene, we kind of revert back to not necessarily a drama. I mean, it's kind of a drama, but you get kind of this like thriller type film at that point. 
So yes, when we do get the killer, it's pretty cool. We just don't get very much of that. Overall, once again, like I said, a Spanish take on a Giallo, but it's little different than a lot of giallos we've seen or i've seen at least overall it's very slow paced and seems like it belongs more in like a proto giallo category so it seems like one of those giallos that would have came out in the later 60s really uh the story is good though and it just depends if it's good enough to get you through for your personal taste or sensibilities for me i mean i liked it enough to revisit it for this episode and upon rewatch <sighs> Maybe I'm a little more down on it than I remembered being in the first place. It's a good drama. It's a pretty good drama um, with shades of thriller at the end with a little bit of horror thrown in. Not really too much of a horror movie, though, but I still enjoy it uh, just for the killer's look alone. And that scene with the killer is pretty cool. So I would say The Corruption of Chris Miller um, I would recommend uh, for a watch. And the other of my rewatches, Tombs of the Blind Dead. Now, I've talked about this film before. Uh, there's a series of four of these films. I had only seen the English versions up until this point. I was planning on watching all four in the native Spanish, if I could find it. Problem with Tombs of the Blind Dead is they don't have good releases, and the English version of this film is crap. Or so I thought going in. That's what I've been led to believe. And really, it does. I mean, it cuts out the violence. Um, it cuts out kind of a lesbian type scene early on it cuts out some nudity and a pretty violent scene along with that nudity and that's actually shifted i think in the english version it's in the beginning of the film and in this one it's in the middle so that kind of threw me off a little bit what we have here is basically there's a cursed town this movie is from 71 um, and we've got this like town that's said to be haunted by these spanish knights templar that committed heinous acts and were damned to death and kind of damned to stay in this place. And it said they come out at night and there's this whole thing about it. So you've got our main characters, our three main characters. They're traveling on a train. The woman wants to be with this guy, but he wants to be with her friend. So it's a really weird thing, kind of a third wheel type thing. So the one woman jumps off a train, jumps off a moving train and finds herself in this village that she knows nothing about, but where these uh, Knights Templar were dwelling um please keep in mind i said there's not a whole lot of difference but i you really should watch the spanish language version of this which is on youtube right now like i said the english version just does cut out a lot and kind of changes it now i've got to kind of put synapse films on notice for this one because i saw a post the other day on twitter that was basically alluded to oh this film may be coming out in 2022 and i don't know if synapse said that but that's not good enough for me. Don't talk about this again until you have a release date. Because this film has been, this, you know, restoration of this film, this 4K restoration, has been in the works since 2020. And I think initially it was supposed to be an all-encompassing thing where they took all four films and put them in a set. Well, that's not happening. It changed, the scope changed at some point, and they're just doing the original. This thing's been talked about since 2020, so don't tell me maybe 2022. I was a little upset when I saw that because I was like, don't act like this is some kind of big win because this film was supposed to be out a long time ago and I was waiting on it. And I'm really upset because I wanted to watch this version of the film when I got to this episode and I can't. So Synapse, I do love what you do. I love what the restorations. I know it's not an easy task, but come on, let's get that. Let's get that thing out sooner rather than later and let's get the other ones out. 
the reason I didn't go through and watch the other ones in Spanish was because I didn't feel like this one made a big enough of an impact or a difference. Uh, there was some cool stuff in there, but I was expecting it to completely change my view on the film, and it really hasn't. It's still a recommended stream for myself, especially since it's one of the more iconic Spanish horror films. But outside of that, and especially, you know, using these Knights Templar as the villains puts a unique spin on this movie, I really like their design and how they're used, although maybe they're not used enough because we do get into more of like a detective story sometime in this, sometime in the middle of this film. And I love the slow motion riding scenes of the blind dead, um, that they're on horses and they're kind of galloping on their prey. And it's the slow motion type scenes. And I do like that effect. Certainly not top tier but there are so many great scenes throughout it, so I would recommend watching this one. I'm not talking a whole lot about it because I've talked before, but still waiting on that Synapse release. Oh, and by the way, that is directed by Amando de Asario, who we're going to get into his other films here now. So that's kind of why I had to put that out there. Forgot about that at the top. So after that very smooth and eloquent segue there, um, let's go ahead and talk about some more Amando de Asario, um, because I did dig in a little deeper to Deosario's catalog. I found one that I'm pretty happy with, I would say. The funny thing is the main reason I got into watching this film was because of the aforementioned in Horror Express, Sylvia Tortosa. I was like, what else is she in? I need to see her in something else. And The Lorelei's Grasp was the first thing I saw. So Lorelei's Grasp is from 1973, and that is L-O-R-E-L-E-Y, if you're looking at how to spell Lorelei. Synopsis reads, the legendary Lorelei has been living for centuries in a grotto beneath the river Rhine in Germany. Every night when the moon is full, she turns into a reptile-like creature craving for human blood. When one girl after another of a nearby boarding school is killed by her, a hunter named Sigurd is engaged to kill the monster. So you got a couple things that are going to check some boxes for me. First is um, boarding school. I am a sucker for these types of boarding school films that happened throughout the 70s mainly, and and several of these came from Spain, which is very interesting. But really what we have here is, again, there's this myth of this ancient creature called the Lorelei, and it's rumored to have come back after we've seen like a couple of murders happen. I mean, yeah, once again, did I watch this only because Sylvia Tortosa from Horror Express was in it? I mean, yeah, probably, but I did end up having a good time with it. It's a very cheesy uh, 70s monster movie. Um, it reminds me a lot of stuff you would see in like the 50s um, as far as the cheesiness of it. So please don't understate that. And it's very weird. This thing goes completely off the rails. And the there is a lot of violence and gore here, but the effects are not like top tier. They're not the greatest effects you're going to see, but it worked enough for me at least. Like I said, it's just so bizarre, you know, like they said, there's a cave where the Lorelei lives and hangs out, and that entire sequence is weird, and there's so many just weird, unexplained things that kind of get thrown into this, and a lot of it follows, really, you would think being at the boarding school, we'd be seeing a lot of that, but a lot of it really follows Sigurd as he's going to hunt or track down the Lorelei. You know, we do get the scenes back at the boarding school. We get to know a little bit of those characters. Not really, though. But definitely some of the attack scenes are really cool, and I really enjoyed them. Again, just a kind of a goofy film um, that harkens back to those older sci-fi movies, but with maybe some nudity and gore to kind of bring it up to the times. It's certainly, at the very least, an interesting little monster movie with its own kind of 
mythos and everything behind it. So I don't know if it'll appeal to many, but if you don't mind a little weirdness and a little camp um, and some very low budget effects, then check it out. Um, it's not a great transfer as many of these aren't, but this one really surprised me and I really liked the Lorelei's Grasp. Continuing on with Deosario's output, we have from 1975, The Possessed or Demon Witch Child, depending on where you find it and how you find it. I'll go ahead and set this one up. Um, an old witch seeks vengeance through the daughter of the politician who had her thrown in jail. Soon the little girl's head is spinning around and an old priest is called in to perform an exorcism. If that sounds familiar, you're <laughs> probably not too far off base. Um, this was one of those movies like so many others that were coined as, you know, exorcist ripoffs that we saw. You had something like um, Beyond the Door um, from Italy that was considered an exorcist ripoff. But the thing is, these aren't really, I don't know, I hate calling things ripoffs. And we'll have another one down in here that is considered another ripoff. Because, like, Beyond the Door and the possessed or demon witch child have those um, sensibilities of their countries and of just some weird stuff that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense to us and it's not going to translate. So I think there's definitely some stuff thrown in here where you can maybe call it like an exorcist ripoff. But I, at the end of the day, like you can call these exorcist ripoffs, but they're trying to do their own movies. I mean, they might start with a similar plot line, but I don't really think this is that close to the exorcist, you know, as one would think. And this is an exorcist ripoff as, you know, Friday the 13th is a Halloween ripoff. So think about that for a minute before you go calling everything a ripoff. Because it it's essentially was, you know, Friday the 13th was made to ape the success of Halloween and the kind of formula that it set out. And Sean Cunningham was in it to make money. And we knew that. Um, he said that as much himself. So that's what I always think about when I would try to call something a ripoff. I think it was a lot of these at least. They're just trying to make a film and maybe a studio or something. Maybe that's the only way they could get their film funded. But I don't think they really fall in line as much with those original films. It's not like beat for beat or anything. It's very odd, though. Um, and it has this strange subplot. And I'm sure this was thrown in to try to add a characterization and kind of make you like the priest like we had in The Exorcist. But we had... Uh, the subplot where it's flashback and you couldn't I couldn't tell it was a flashback at first I was very lost and confused and I didn't know what was going on but the priest he had left a woman for the cloth and he told her this and she was heartbroken and as we see as it goes through it kind of ruined her life completely which is crazy to think you know that a man dumping you is going to ruin your life and send you down this kind of spiral I don't know about all that and Again, I guess it's there to flesh out the priest, but it just feels jarring and it feels weird and it feels like it doesn't belong in this movie. There are some cool aspects um, and scenes, but I feel like it just never really completely fits together. Deosario's kind of hit and miss. I wouldn't say he's made anything great. Um, like if we're throwing out scores, which I do not like to do on this show, but I don't think he really makes anything that's over into that like great territory. So it's never really across the threshold for me, but he does make some really good and really interesting films. Well, more interesting than good sometimes, but Deosario is definitely one that if you haven't checked out anything, you definitely should. But, you know, with this one, the strangeness and this oddity feel of it uh, will attract some, I know. Just know that it going in and know that it's very low budget like the rest of Deosario's stuff, and you might have a good time with it. 
But again, if you haven't checked out anything by Deosario, there's the Blind Dead series that you might want to start with, um, Lorelei's Grasp, and the Possessed or Demon Witch Child. Demon Witch Child would definitely be one of the lower ones on the list in my in my point of view anyway. Moving right along, we get to a film called Vengeance of the Zombies or Walk of the Dead. There are several films as you're going through that you notice have several different titles and sometimes when you're trying to find something on a streaming service, it's not under the title that you see it on on Letterboxd or IMDb or so on and so forth. Um, this is one of those now, this is from 1973, and it was directed by Leon Klimovsky. And, yeah, that doesn't really sound like a Spanish name. Um, sounds more Polish, but he is actually from Argentina. Again, what we're seeing here is most likely just a co-production. Um, but, really, he must have made this movie in Spain and had an entire Spanish crew because I only see it listed as Spain. It also is our first film we're going to cover of many that stars Paul Nashi, who is kind of this national treasure of Spain. Um, I'll get into that a little bit after we get through this movie to kind of set up Paul Nashi. But it's a very interesting film. I wouldn't say it's a good film. <laughs> so, and I had to look the, something up after I saw this for the first time. There's this really weird thing where every time we're about to get someone, get like a violent scene or anything like that, the words shock notice pop up on the screen and there's this sound effect that goes with it. And I'm thinking, first of all, oh, is this some kind of like edited thing and I'm not going to see the violence? But no, the violence is there. It's just they accompany every single bit of violence or not every single bit, but it happens probably at least five times throughout the movie where they flash up this sound effect and shock notice comes on the screen. I don't know if this is some kind of like meta thing, you know, where they're trying to be ahead of the curve and be like, hey, look at this. It's so cool. Um, or if this is something that's genuinely trying to give notice and, you know, let people know there's something frightening or terrifying about to happen. But either way, it feels very like 1960s Batman. Very weird with that popping on the screen, this weird sound effect. Yeah, there's also an accompanying jazz score that makes it feel like you're watching like an old Pink Panther cartoon or something. Uh, it's very, very jarring with that as well. So needless to say, this movie gets in its own way a whole lot. But in another twist, uh, the great Paul Nashi plays three roles, including that of an Indian mystic. So the Spanish-born Paul Nashi plays an Indian mystic. And I didn't know it at first. I didn't I didn't catch it at first. And I was like, wait a minute. No, no, no. When I'm looking up, I'm like, well, who who else is Paul Nashi playing? I'm looking at them like, what? Come on, guys. Come on. So <laughs> very interesting. Um, Paul Nashi, just like a Barbara Steele type character, is known for playing multiple roles in these films and different roles between originals and sequels. And we'll see that later. So it's very weird. It's a very weird film. I can't say enough about that. There's a very strange, like, dream sequence with Nashi playing a horned Satan as well. So this one is just completely bizarre. Like, a lot of these are, really. Uh, looking at my notes here, I did love the simple design of the zombies in this movie. And I do remember enjoying that. Um, they didn't go too crazy with it. And they, I think it looked, I think I liked the look that they went with and the ch artistic choice that they went with. But at some point, this one just lost me. I mean, you've got a, a Spanish actor playing an Indian mystic and this woman seeking help from him. And it's just very, very bizarre, strange movie. Um, at the end of the day, I can say it was definitely memorable, um, just not great overall. 
there's so many things that will just stand out to you with this film. It's not going to get lost in the shuffle. Like maybe some of these others will throughout these reviews, but really just like with the possessed, I mean, this has got to be lower on your list. If you're going to check it out, I don't know if I, I guess I'd recommend it as like a one-time watch the same with the possessed, but those can stay pretty low down on your list. And it's something if you want to dive deep into Spanish horror and check those out, you can do so. Um, this is also on part of the Paul Nashi collection, which is a very weird mix-up of five different films. I wish there were better Paul Nashi releases and a better lineup put in that Paul Nashi collection. But, you know, it's interesting at least. All right, so we're going to have to talk about Paul Nashi, right? If you're not aware, Paul Nashi was a Spanish horror icon, I would say. I would mostly compare him to like a Christopher Lee of that country. I've heard people say Boris Karloff, but you get the general idea, right? Is he's this figure that's playing these classic monsters a lot of the time. He's in all these different like gothic type films, all these horror films. And they range from pretty bad to actually really good. He's kind of all over the place. But Nashi was a little more than like a Lee or a Karloff in the sense that, you know, in addition to his incredible commitment to the craft of acting and horror films, you know, he would act in several horror movies in the late 60s and early 70s, many of which are not considered very good. But in the late 70s, he began directing and writing as well. And he would continue to act in these films. So think a B-movie like Clint Eastwood type situation or Ben Affleck maybe even. But yeah, he was a writer, director, and actor in his own films. Sometimes he played multiple characters in his own films. Like, nah, I don't trust you people to see my vision through. I'm not only going to write and direct this thing, but I'm going to act in half of the starring roles. No, I don't think I don't think that happens. But he does play several characters in some of these films. But you want to talk about the auteur theory and you know the execution of an auteur, not only writing and directing but acting. Now that's now that's something right there. But Nashi continued to carry the flag for Spanish horror. I think I talked about this a little bit earlier. Even after the country's horror golden age had passed, so you had basically Nashi and Juan Piquer Simone and Jess Franco. Uh, pumping out Spanish horror movies in the 80s. Other than that, it pretty much dried up for the most part. So, Nashi continued to lead the charge with his great horror films that he would come to put out in the 80s. In my opinion, the films he created himself were leagues above most um, that he only acted in. And I feel most are really overlooked. I've at least heard of Paul Nashi, but hadn't really dove deep into the whole Nashi filmography until I got a chance for this episode. And it was definitely one of the better surprises. So it really shows, though, that the guy knew horror and he knew what to create. And he, it, you feel like maybe he's frustrated um, in front of the camera because he can't seek out his vision. He's in these movies that aren't really great. And you almost get the sense that he's just like, hey, I'm going to take the reins here and I'm going to start directing and writing myself so I can get my creative process out there and get these, you know, the best films that they can be. His directorial debut would be with Inquisition in 1977. So let's go ahead and get into Inquisition. Inquisition is one of those films that I've talked about as I'm going through, you know, this early Euro horror phase. I could not find this film anywhere, really. The only way that I was able to find this film was buying the Mondo Macabre Blu-ray. And... 
Yeah, so I did. I blind bought this Mondo Macabre Blu-ray. And it's not the first one I did for this episode. I did it with another one. Um, I think that's going to be my last review for the evening. Um, no spoilers there. But I've done this with um, Don't Deliver Us From Evil as well that Dave and I talked about on episode 5. And I really enjoyed that one. So this has been working out for me. There was one other one that I was thinking about blind buying for this episode, but I was like, no, I don't have the funds to just keep doing this. I've covered enough movies. I'll get it some other time. But it's very disappointing that you can't find these anywhere but on disc. And that's usually not a problem for me. I love disc, but I do not like blind buying. I don't like doing that. I have so many movies. I have a running list of well over 200 movies that I need to buy and add to my collection. I can't with good conscience usually, unless it's for something for the episode, or I really, really, really want to see it, blind buy something and just not, you know, buy something else that I could have got. Because I could have got, you know, with these Mondo Macabre, they're like 25 bucks. So I could have got maybe a couple of smaller films and put to my collection um, and kind of whittled down my list instead of doing this. But either way, I probably would have ended up buying it in the end. I guess it's better to get it before it goes out of style. But it's very sad that... There's just not an easy way to see all this stuff. Let's go ahead and set up Inquisition as Nashi's directorial debut. And the good thing about Nashi's films here, maybe not the good things, but they're all float around that 90 minute mark. And I don't feel like any of them are too long or too short. I think they feel all like the right length. The guy just had a kind of a mastery of the craft. I wouldn't say these are like huge films by any means, or they're not going to compete with some larger films, but the guy knew what he was doing. So this is a period piece set during the Inquisition, and that is the Spanish Inquisition, about a witchfinder general who falls in love with the village beauty who has made a pact with the devil to seduce and condemn the man who is killing off Satan's servants. That's not necessarily accurate. There's some kernels of truth in there. There's a lot of Mark of the Devil in this movie, although I don't think it's as good as Mark of the Devil. You can kind of tell that Nashi's getting his feet under him um, as far as crafting films and getting everything together and learning everything. It's still such a solid debut, though. It shines light specifically on the Spanish Inquisition, which is pretty similar to those, you know, witch hunters we would see in, or witch finder generals we would see throughout Europe and the United States at this time. It's really crazy that everywhere was they were going through these same kind of movements where they were calling out women, mostly women, burning them, torturing them, all this stuff, um, just because someone said they were a witch or said they did this or said they did that. Um, so it falls into that tradition, but I feel like there still is that kind of Spanish feel to this. And let me tell you, some of the torturing that goes on, it's pretty gruesome. I've flinched a couple times. It's not like it's super realistic or anything, but I feel like just the scenarios and feeling like putting myself in that position it's pretty sick. Um, it's not uh, Mark of the Devil. It's not going to get that intense. But yeah, it's pretty pretty cruel what they're doing to some of these people. Plenty of movies that shone light on this stuff. And usually uh, seem to be that 60s and 70s period, that late 60s, early 70s period that did a lot of these odes to that kind of stuff. Or did a, not odes, but did a lot of looking into and talking about that kind of stuff. Oh, by the way, this is from 1977. So you'll notice Nashi doesn't start until really after the golden age of Spanish horror. It, or it's at least on the declining phase of that. Uh, this differs a little bit in the sense that there are actually witches in this film. And we see that very early on. Or at least um, those worshipping Satan in the film. I'm going to kind of leave it up to 
you to decide what you think. It's kind of left up to us whether we think these are actual witches and all this stuff is happening or if it's kind of in their head. So that's an interesting take. Usually we just see innocent people who have nothing to do with the devil just being condemned to death. At this point, some of these people, they might actually be right about them. So there still are, you know, plenty of innocent victims. Uh, the witchcraft and ritual stuff in this film are just so surreal and so mesmerizing. I really, really like those parts. They have kind of these like black Sabbaths or these occult type meetings and... Again, that's where something where you can't really tell if it's real or if it's a dream or whatever it is, but it's pretty incredible. I really love those, and I think those are really the strongest part of the film. I wish there were a little more of those. But many times we see the Witchfinder kind of forcing themselves on the supposed witches in these types of films, and, you know, that's that's pretty much you have to have one of those in every every movie. Well, this time we get a little bit of the women fighting back and seeking revenge and trying to protect themselves. Now, whether they can carry that out or not, and whether they're successful in that, you'll have to tune in to see. But this is a really good debut from Nashi, and I can't understate that enough. Is this my favorite Nashi film? No. No, not by... Probably not by a few films. It's probably down there a little bit. But, um, yeah, it had some lows for sure. But the highs were really high. And like I said, that occult stuff, really good scenes. And Nashi, I think, shows enough chops here that we know that he's going to be capable of rising above and beyond. And I think he does. And he rises a little bit above a Deosario, in my estimation, with his films. I think all of his films are really above Deosario's films. Or at least most of them. I mean, he has several films that are above Deosario. I have not seen all of them. I didn't see his later 80s work. I just ran out of time, and I covered too much stuff as it is. But Inquisition, it's a hard one to recommend because you have to buy it to see it for the most part. But if you can find it somewhere, definitely worth checking out. But if you can't, um, we're going to talk about other Nashi films that maybe would be easier to find and better introductions. All right, let's continue on this little Paul Nashi train here for a little bit. We will switch back to other stuff eventually. And I'm going to talk about Nashi a little later. But let's go to 1980's The Beast Carnival. Now, The Beast's Carnival is a very intriguing film. Let me let me set this one up. So 1980, a hitman working for the Yakuza double-crosses his employers and flees with a cache of diamonds from the latest heist. Injured and hiding in the mountain regions of Spain with Japanese assassins in hot pursuit, he takes refuge in the home of a local doctor and his two daughters, who nurse him back to health and hide him from his pursuers, taking drastic and murderous measures to protect him. So, when I was reading that, um, I cut out the very last line of that synopsis. It's not that it's necessarily that much of a spoiler, but it kind of gives away, and I would rather there be some surprise. The beginning of this movie starts out as this weird kind of maybe Euro crime film, but it has Japanese actors in it as well. And Nashi would be pretty well known. He would do a couple or a few films that had, you know, Japanese characters or actors in them. Um, so this was his first kind of foray into that, but that wouldn't be the last time we'd see this from Nashi. Probably, you know, more along those lines of those co-productions that Spain was doing all over the place. Um, but the, this kind of feels like a Euro crime film at the beginning. You know, we've got kind of like a spy type thing, double agent almost type thing. But it's very much into that criminal world and that criminal setting. 
and what they're doing. And again, like they said, he takes the diamonds, he double crosses them, kills some of their men, and goes and flees. And they, you know, it's a brother and a sister, and he's supposed to be in love with this sister. And Nashi's character is supposed to be in love with this woman. But, you know, they kind of go back and forth about double crossing each other. And at the end of the day, they say they're going to go, you know, get trained to be assassins and go after this guy. So they grab some men, they finally find him, and they're going on a manhunt in these woods, but Nashi is still kind of like murdering them as they go through. So this is how this whole thing works out, and it's, you know, there's these gunfights, there's this espionage type stuff, or, you know, this dirty like assassination type stuff. So yeah, you're not sure what to expect or if this will even be a horror movie, and I'm not really the biggest fan of the first 20 minutes, to tell you the truth. But once Nashi gets to this house that we talked about in the summary, the movie really picks up. Just the weird dynamics of all these characters. And, you know, it's a man and his two daughters. The weird dynamics about how they coexist within the house. Oh, and there is, um, I believe, like a maid or something like that as well. And there's a really interesting and weird scene with that whole relationship there. There's a lot of weird stuff in this movie. I'm kind of being broad and vague here. But this film is very weird, extremely weird in places. There is an air of mystery to the film from the point where Nashi gets to the house on. You can probably guess what will happen, but that didn't really ruin it for me. There is this strong mystery once he's there. Also, um, I remember the main theme song to this film just being pretty amazing. That's kind of off topic, but I do like to. I don't notice music all that much, so when something stands out to me, I like to call it out. This isn't like Goblin's, you know, Deep Red theme or Suspiria theme type level, but it's pretty good. Again, just a strange film, and especially there's this dinner party later on. It's very incredibly bizarre, but that's where you kind of find out what the score is here, right? Like, what's going on with these people and what they're all about, and there's a... There's several murders that happen like in between those points and plenty of intrigue here, but where it ultimately goes, I found pretty enjoyable. Like I said, after we get through that first 20 minutes, which are kind of weird and kind of a little bit of a slog, I think the film really picks up and I think I can safely recommend this to um, anyone if you can find it. I can't remember where I found all of these. I might have found some of these on like archive.org. thing about Nashi films is... The versions you're going to find are all the dubbed versions. Um, I don't know if there have been good releases with English subtitles of the Spanish versions, but I didn't mind the dubbed films. It's something where, you know, I grew up with it with Godzilla, so the dubbing of films, I would much rather have the original language, but I got into Godzilla, I got into Giallos with dubbing, so I can, I've got a sort of like threshold or tolerance for that. If you don't, you might find some issues with these films, but... Anyway, definitely recommend The Beast Carnival. The Beast's Carnival. Let's go into what I think is the best of Paul Nashi's films. And that would be, and probably the most well-known, if we're being honest, and that is Night of the Werewolf. Okay, everyone, listen. If you're taking notes on what to watch, this is should be high on your list from this episode. If you're going to do your homework and go and watch some of these films, Night of the Werewolf is a great place to start maybe maybe not start but if you're already into some of those european horror films from this time period it's a good jumping off point um so this one's from 1981 and the synopsis here reads an evil witch brings back to life 
the infamous Elizabeth Bathory, who was executed several hundred years previously for murdering young women and bathing in their blood. So, now you're saying to yourself, well, Trey, this is called Night of the Werewolf. You said something about a witch and a woman bathing in blood, and we know Elizabeth Bathory was supposedly like this vampire-type creature. What about the werewolf? Well, um, yeah, I thought the same thing myself. I'm like, wait a minute, this is Night of the Werewolf, but all they're talking about are like vampires and witches and this type, kind of stuff. But the setup to this movie is very weird. We do have some definitely likable characters in here. I think that's one of my favorite things is that there are characters that you do enjoy. And there is a werewolf. I mean, I'm just going to lay it out here, okay? There are vampires. There is a werewolf. How often do we get vampires versus werewolves? Like, seriously. Other than, like, Underworld, which is... Listen, I like the Underworld films, but they're kind of a CGI nightmare. But how often do we get vampires versus werewolves? Especially, like, back then. The in-battle I found especially cool between these two forces. Nashi is kind of portrayed as an anti-hero, really. So, I mean, we've had enough, guys, right? We have had just about enough. Take your priest, get him out of here. Take your vampire hunters, get them out of here. We want monsters battling monsters. We want werewolves trying to rip apart some vampires. Uh, Paul Nashi is definitely an anti-hero here, and I love it. So basically where we start with this one is Nashi is in league with these vampires and Elizabeth Bathory at the beginning of this film. And the opening of this film just starts you off so good. Um, and it leaves such an impression because they're sentenced to death. And that's how it starts. And then there's this legend about how they're kind of uh, been buried and contained. And we have these three women that are supposedly going to research, but their motives are kind of foggy, at least maybe for some of them. But you end up with the resurrection of Nashi's werewolf, who was kind of already resurrected, and these vampires as well. And it ends in this kind of battle because for some reason, Nashi and Bathory don't get along here. There would be a lot of these Elizabeth Bathory type films, or at least mentions of Elizabeth Bathory in a lot of these European films at the time. And I get it, it's cool you're trying to go away from the route of Dracula and go to, you know, the powerful female vampire. That's pretty cool. You're, you're switching things up. I appreciate it. There are so many countless, like, cool images and scenes in this, um, including some pretty decent violence, I thought. Now, I could only find, again, the dub, and some of the voiceovers are pretty awful, but there's so much good here that I think it offsets it. I really enjoy Night of the Werewolf. I'm not going to say a whole lot more about it, I think I've said enough about it to let you know that I can recommend this one without hesitation if you're in the mood for a good werewolf film. Oh, and one thing, one other thing I just forgot about. There's this kind of simple design of Nashi's werewolf, and I kind of really love it. Werewolf designs are always kind of up in the air to whether they're good or not. I really like Nashi's werewolf design here. Okay, well, uh, that's Night of the Werewolf, and that's the end of the Nashi conversation for now. We will be getting back into Nashi a little later, but let's move on. Okay, man, almost have to take a break after that or a breather. There are just so many, um, these mini-reviews. I kind of didn't know what I was signing up for. I watched so many of these. Surprisingly, they didn't bleed together as much as I would think. But I've been doing some work on these over the last couple weeks. We got about, I think, six, seven, eight. We're about halfway, a little over halfway through, I think, at this point. Um, let's keep this trend going. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this next film at all. But we're going to talk a little bit of Jess Franco right now. Just Franco, if you will. I think Jesus Franco has a pretty recognizable name. As far as like in the horror realm, I think people who 
dig into horror films probably know, especially like this European stuff, some Jess Franco films. One of the most prominent is Vampiros Lesbos, which again, I think is in German. I think there's a lot of German collaborations with Franco, but this one's from 1971, and it's probably the most well-known Franco movie, I would say, as far as the name at least. Maybe you haven't seen it, but you probably know the name. Let's go on to a, a, a synopsis of this one. An erotic horror tale about a vixen vampire's seducing and killing women to appease her insatiable thirst for female blood. Let's just say, and I think I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, I don't know, I'm probably not a Just Franco fan, because the one movie of Franco's that I like isn't necessarily in the same style. I still want to watch a couple more, but Vampiro's Lesbos, such a doll movie. It's extremely unconventional and kind of hard to follow a little bit, but it really didn't hold my attention at all. It's so slow-paced, it's so slow-moving, it's basically just a film about, you know, vampire lesbians. It is what is in the title. There's just a little bit of a lack of vampires and a lot of bit of lesbians. Yeah, I don't know. What a slog this is, you know. I couldn't really recommend this to anyone. I'm sure it has its fans out there for sure. For me, this is not my type of film. And if this is what a majority of Franco put out, I don't really want anything to do with it. And I also checked out the uh, Diabolical Dr. Z which I think is like a semi-sequel to the um, awful Dr. Orloff from the early 60s. Uh, but this one came out in 66. I heard Franco's 60s stuff is kind of more digestible. Well, I'll tell you what, not for me either. This is a very simple synopsis. A woman seeks to avenge her father's death by using a local dancer with long poisonous fingernails to do her bidding. And it sounds kind of cool, but I don't think it ever executes on that premise. I think the execution is pretty poor. There's very cool images in this film, and there's some things to like about it for sure. I just kind of bounced off this one, and there's definitely weird, weird things going on in this film as well. I would say for me personally that both of these are avoids. I know definitely they have their fans. I just couldn't get into either one of them, and that's going to happen sometimes. I'm liked the Diabolical Dr. Z much more than Vampiros Lesbos, but it just lost me. It couldn't keep me. So, uh, but let's not, and I want to end this on a high note and talk about the film from Jess Franco that I did like that is apparently not really like his other films, but I think this is a superb film. And it is from 1981 called Bloody Moon. Let's run down the synopsis before we get into this one. And I want to read the tagline for this kind of, it's kind of funny, um, as a man who enjoys puns. Uh, don't panic. It only happens once in a bloody moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Miguel, a horribly disfigured young man, goes on a rampage at a masquerade party and rapes and then mutilates a girl. Institutionalized at a mental asylum, he is released five years later into the care of his sister, Manuela, who, along with their wheelchair-bound mother, operates a boarding school, there it is, for young women. Miguel becomes obsessed with one of the girls at the school and wants to resume his incestuous relationship with his sister. Wow, a lot to unpack there. Again, boarding school, you've already got me. It's so weird that I'm inclined, it seems like, I don't know if it's the quality of the movie or if I'm just inclined to like films better if they're set at a boarding school, but this is a good one. This is a really good one. If you are a slasher fan, this is for you. 
This is Jess Franco's take on a slasher. I think, I don't know if he did this because from what I understand, this differs a lot from his other films. So I don't know if this is something where he's trying to get a commercial success or what. And I can't, I can't remember if I said the year, but this is 1981. So it's right there near the beginning of the slasher craze, a little bit into it. Pretty good for being from a different country and trying to follow that trend. So again, set it to boarding school. I'm invested immediately. They've got me. I'm a sucker. Um, but really what this is, is a very graphic and bloody slasher with characters that I actually like and enjoyed. The kills in this movie are so stylized and so memorable that it's just a joy to watch. I really like Bloody Moon, I gotta say. And it kind of jumped up already to the top, into my top slashers list. It's not at the top. I don't know where it would be. I haven't put together, surprisingly, a slashers list. Um, I'm sure I would do a slasher episode at some point. That's gonna be a little bit of a work, though. So we'll see how can tackle that. But I think this is a really good slasher. If you haven't seen Bloody Moon and you're really into slashers, um, so definitely someone like uh, Greg Amortis. I don't know if Greg Amortis has seen this or not over on Land of the Creeps, but if you haven't, brother, you got to check this one out for sure. Uh, it's a mix of kind of the slasher trope with over-the-top gore, and we weren't seeing a lot of good gore effects, I don't think, at the time. With slashers, I mean, there's definitely some that stand out, but this one just stands out in a lot of its kill scenes. And, but it also has that European feel and those European sensibilities, as I always say, that makes this a winning combination. I can't gush enough about Bloody Moon and neither could the special effects artist because yeah, you know, they're, this is a pretty, um, pretty brutal movie. Uh, I just love it. I love the characters. Listen, they're not deep, deep characters, but I had enough of an attachment to the characters. Um, several characters. I think it's a deep movie. I think it's got a lot of, it doesn't really necessarily follow some of the slasher trips. It follows some of them, but it's an interesting take on a slasher and definitely check this one out. Should be able to find this one pretty easy. I think it's over on Tubi TV. So go and check that one out when you get a chance. Bloody Moon, great film. But to wrap up my feelings on Jess Franco, like I said, really wasn't into anything but Bloody Moon. I was very intrigued on seeing um, the films She Killed in Ecstasy and A Virgin Among the Living Dead. I just couldn't find them anywhere apart from buying them. And I wasn't going to blind buy a film by a guy who I probably wouldn't like these. I don't know. I want to see them. Problem was, I couldn't find them anywhere online. Regardless of, you know, the different avenues, wink, wink, I went down to try to find. Problem with these ones are, even if you find them somewhere, they may not have English subtitles. So I do want to check out a couple more before I give a final verdict on Franco's work. But so far, uh, pretty mixed. Bloody Moon is great. The other couple films, I'd say Bloody Moon is great. Uh, Diabolical Dr. Z is kind of an average film for me. And I just did not like Vampiros Lesbos at all. So that's all I got into with Jess Franco. Certainly there's some room to watch some more Franco films later down the line if they ever become available somewhere other than buying them. I probably won't ever blind buy those two films, just letting you know. So if you've seen them and you really like them, hit me up. Let me know what you liked about them. All right, well, let's get back to Paul Nashi, shall we? I promised we would return to Nashi, this time not in the director's chair, for Horror Rises from the Tomb. Now, this one was directed by Carlos Ared, I believe. Not sure how to pronounce that. Maybe I screwed that up. Um, but it's from 1973. 
again, a recurring theme. We don't have much from the 80s after Spain was freed. I won't belabor that point anymore. But let's go ahead and run down a synopsis here. In medieval France, a warlock is beheaded and his wife tortured and executed. Hundreds of years later, an isolated group of people discover his head buried on their property. Soon it comes back to life, possessing people and using them to commit sacrifices and to search for the rest of his body. Now, I think I was getting this one a little confused with um, Night of the Werewolf um, as far as the openings, but they both have really good openings. I think this one on the opposite side of the coin as Night of the Werewolf uh, goes a little downhill after the opening. Uh, but we do have uh, Paul Nashi playing another dual role. Um, he plays both the villain and one of the, you know, innocent bystanders here. Or maybe not so innocent bystanders, who knows. But there's some really good uh, sickle action going on with this one, if I remember right. Which I always enjoy, some good sickle action. But that's a very good, very good use of that weapon. And this one... I remember having just a very unique way to get rid of the monsters here. The main problem for this one, because I do really like it on a surface level, but if we're talking about the main detractor for me, it's really just that there's too many characters and you tend to lose some of the characters along the way, especially some of the women. So while there's some really good stuff in here, there's really only one character that I want to root for and that I kind of care about. They don't necessarily even get it to the point where I'm completely caring about that character, but the characters just get lost. Other than that, there's some really good action here. Paul Nashi does a good job, as always. And yeah, that is Horror Rises Up From The Tomb. Now, I saved one of the Paul Nashi directed and written films for this spot in the episode and there's a reason for that is this is a semi sequel to horror rises up from the tomb in a sense uh loosely <laughs> allegedly there's really one thing that they share in common the rest i mean they couldn't be more different from each other uh, so this was directed by nashi and released in 1983 now there are a couple of other names for this one it's either panic beats or heartbeat all one word heartbeat. So I had luck finding it under Panic Beats, which might have been like the US name for it. But let me go into a little synopsis. I believe this was the only Nashi film that I was able to see in the Spanish original language with subtitles. Paul Marnac and his infirm wife Genevieve moved to his childhood estate in the French countryside. The estate is also the site of the castle inhabited by Paul's ancestor, Alaric de Marnac who was known for brutally slaughtering anyone whom he suspected of infidelity. There is a legend that Alaric rises from the grave to continue his deeds. The estate is currently inhabited by Paul's aunt Mavel and cousin Julie. Right after Paul and Genevieve arrive, mysterious things begin to happen. Genevieve begins to wonder if the legend about Alaric is true. You know, that's a pretty good synopsis. I think I might understand the film a little better now. Seriously, though, this is a pretty good film, but it's completely different than Horror Rises Up From The Tomb. The only thing they have in common, really, is there is Alaric uh, de Marnock, who is rising from the grave again. Those are really the only things the two films have in common. This uh, directorial credit is the only to Nashi's real name, which was Jacinto Molina Alvarez. Here, this one, once again, really nails the intro. Um, the intro is incredible. 
Nashi kind of has a knack for that, it seems, in a lot of his films. Well, not really, because he didn't really like Beast Carnival intro. But he's he's got a couple films where he really hits the intro and gets you invested from the start. This feels like much more of a thriller, murder plot type movie for the most part. Now, the last 20 minutes, though, this thing pretty much goes full-on horror. And it's much gorier. Once it gets there, it's much gorier than the rest of Nashi's films. This does kind of play out as like a... I don't know if I want to say like a film noir type, but there's definitely those like mystery type, maybe, I don't want to say Hitchcockian either because it's not on that level, but that's the type of stuff we have going on here. Or maybe to a lesser extent, maybe it's like a giallo type plot going on in the background, which is really cool to see this kind of different take from some of Nashi's other films. He really does switch it up in the movies he directs. I do like it. One of my problems is there is one mysterious character who... Shares a name with a character from Horror Rises Up From The Tomb, but they really hide him in the shadows, and they never really do pay off his storyline in any way. Um, it kind of smacks of, this is a cut storyline, why didn't you cut this entire thing out of here? But it kind of plays to another character's motivations, maybe. I don't know, that was a pretty big hang-up for me. Uh, we'll never know. Um, never know. So that was, that was a bit of setback for me, but it's a really good mystery kind of plot film. Maybe it's a little obvious, but I really enjoy it. So it's another one of those. I don't, there hasn't been a Nashi directed film that I've seen that I can't really recommend. But both of these films, Horror Rises Up From The Tomb and Panic Beats Heartbeats, I would recommend both of those. All right, we're getting to the finish line here. We've got three more movies to talk about. I'll do the two that I didn't really like first, and then we'll get into one that I was a, actually a big surprise for me. First of all, Bell From Hell. So, Bell from Hell um, was directed, co-directed by Juan Antonio Bardem and Claudio Guerin, and it was a 1973 release. In this film, a young man is released from an asylum and returns home for revenge on his aunt and her three daughters, who had him declared insane in order to steal his inheritance. That's pretty accurate as to what's going on. Very strange film. Very weird. It's like the main character here, who, again, who was just released, is kind of out pulling all these different pranks, but they don't really kind of connect and go together. It's pretty dull starting out, but let's back up a little bit. So there was something, and I don't know, that's the problem with this, is it's a pretty dull film, and it had some pretty dire consequences. So a little bit of background why there were two directors on this film. Um, there was an unfortunate thing that happened to the original director, Claudio Guerin, and he fell to his death from a bell tower during shooting. Juan Antonio Bardem would have to step in and finish the film for the late Claudio Guerin, and that's just really unfortunate and sad that that happened. So, yeah, I, yeah, that's really unfortunate, but again, it's, it's just a really disjointed film. The pacing seems off. Uh, you can't really distinguish between the characters from one another, and it's mostly just a dull film. It does set up for something cool near the end of it, but we end up just getting some senseless scenes of violence against animals, and it doesn't really pay off anything at all. I hate to tell anyone not to watch a film, but I'm going to go ahead and say to avoid Belle from Hell. Alright, moving on uh, to something else that I'm not a huge fan of, and that is The Legend of Blood Castle, directed by Jorge Grau, from 1973. Now, we know this director had worked previously on Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, 
um, or Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, whichever title you know it under. And I was really excited to check this film out. Well, let's go ahead and set up the synopsis. Here we go again. Countess Elizabeth Bathory conspires with her husband to acquire the blood of virgins to maintain her youth and beauty. So we have another European rendition of the Countess Bathory. It does have this kind of gothic feel long after gothic was cool. I mean, just ask Hammer at this point in 1973. This vampire film's pretty slow paced and doesn't really have too much as far as action goes with like the horror elements, which I'm okay with in films. I don't need a lot of in-your-face horror, but if you're going to make a slow burn, the slow burn better be engaging in some way and it better pay off, and I don't feel like it does here. It's also kind of confusing. I'm not sure who some of the characters are and how they relate to others, and it's just a jumbled mess of a film. Maybe if you're a completionist of Spanish horror, this is something you want to watch. Listen, if you're a completionist of Spanish horror, there are much worse things to watch than this. So I don't really like The Legend of Blood Castle, but I'm just kind of indifferent to it, really. Maybe it's worth a one-time watch, leaning more towards the avoid category. Okay, so we've got those out of the way. Let's get into the main review I'm doing for the episode and talk about one that surprised me. Now, similar to Inquisition, I had to buy this film. That's the only way I could see it. I couldn't find it anywhere online. And that is 1978's Satan's Blood. Satan's Blood is directed by Carlos Puerto, and we can get into that a little bit right at the top. So it was directed by Carlos Puerto, but Juan Piquer Simon of Pieces and Slugs fame, um, I don't know if that's fame or infamy, but he was listed as an uncredited director on this. And when I went back and listened to the director talk about it, because Simon was also the producer, according to Puerta, Juan was very controlling, but as far as directing went, was really only responsible for the prologue segment. So it's, I think, from... What I was getting reading between the lines, it seemed like Carlos felt like Juan was very much trying to control the film and taking credit for a lot of the things that he did, when really he just went through after the film was over and went in and added stuff or changed stuff around. That's unfortunate to see. But despite that, this is a good film. Let me go ahead and give you a synopsis, and there are some caveats that go along with this as well. Andy and Thelma, an urbanite couple living in Madrid leave their apartment for a pleasant day around the city with their dog. They cross paths with Bruno and Anne, a strange couple who invite them to their foreboding country estate. A storm hits that evening, and the two stay overnight. The couples engage in a bit of harmless communication with spirits via Ouija board, but soon past conflicts arise. This is the only the beginning of all the horrors that will haunt them in the house. There's some two pretty big plot points that I just omitted from that synopsis. And the one thing that they left out is that Thelma is pregnant. So that plays a big part in this. And that plays a little bit, you need to know that for what I'm going to talk about. So the setup of this film is outstanding. There's a level that something is just off the entire way in the film, really. Um, and I love that unsettling, creepy feeling when there's just something that seems off and you cannot put your finger on it. It's great. You really get... It makes a lot of sense also. So we criticize a lot of times, I think, us so-called critics. I wouldn't call myself a critic. I'm more of like an enthusiast, I would say, since I am very lenient on a lot of things. But we often like to criticize different aspects of like that don't make sense. Well, 
I think it makes a lot of sense as to why they're stuck in this location and why they can't leave. You know, they follow the couple an hour outside of the city, and they don't know how to get back to the main road. And, you know, this is way, way, way before GPS. So they don't have any way of knowing, really. It doesn't seem like they have a map with them because they weren't planning on going anywhere. Yeah, it just seems like a good reason why they're stuck. And I always appreciate that kind of level of detail. Our main couple are very likable characters, but man, there's a lot of baggage with their past, and the past of all four of these characters, really. And I want to kind of throw out a warning. So I loved Satan's Blood. I will tell you that first and foremost, just like right up front, I love Satan's Blood. I will warn you if you're kind of prone to avoiding sexual things within films, uh, and not just nudity, maybe you want to skip around this one. Because I'll warn you, there's a weird, like almost very graphic orgy scene kind of in the middle of this movie and it goes on for quite a while um normally that would really take me out of a movie but here the whole scene itself is so weird and it has this sinister undertone running throughout um with this dark music playing so in the end it didn't really bother me as much as normal just know that it's pretty graphic in its nudity and there is a lot of nudity and sexual type scenes i mean this was the equivalent of an x-rated film in the U.S. if it were released in the U.S. So that should give you an idea of where we're at. And I don't think there's really any, it's not a hardcore adult film or anything like that. I'm just saying there's a lot of nudity, there's a lot of sexuality running through this film, so just know that. But it's such a strange film and it doesn't waste any time explaining stuff. Instead, it keeps things pretty mysterious until the end, which is funny because I think the very end was tacked on later and I actually like the very end being tacked on there. Rest assured, though, and I think this is called, we talked on it before with Exorcist clones, this is not a Rosemary's Baby's ripoff. I'll tell you that right now. You might be thinking that going in. You might hear people talking about it like that. But rather, it is the Rosemary's Baby of Spain. And take that for what you will. It's not to the level of Rosemary's Baby, for sure. It's not quite as good. And there are definitely aspects that detract from it. But it's a very entertaining movie, and I was enthralled from the beginning. So, Satan's Blood, extremely good film. Yeah, really enjoyed that one. So, I really recommend you checking that out. So, that wraps it up for the many reviews on this episode. We went through, I think, 18 or 19 films there. So, that should give you a good starting point if you're looking to dig deeper into Spanish horror. Now, if you're looking for maybe a bit of a surface level, you haven't started anywhere, you want places to start, Maybe go back and listen to the episode that Dave Becker and I did on episode 5, and there's a section in there about Spanish horror that's more of the more recognizable films. That might be a good place to start. <sighs> to kind of wrap up here, the problem with many of these is that they're so hard to find. Like I said, I had to blind buy a couple for full retail price, and that was the only way to see a few more, too. Like, there were several that you could only buy the physical release of this, and that's it. Which, it's good that a lot of them had the physical releases still in print to buy. I'm not complaining about that. It's just difficult to blind buy something for that much money. Many others on streaming had bad transfers available. And others weren't available to buy or stream anywhere, like I said. Um, it's also hard to find the Spanish language versions of many of these. And I chalk that up to a lot of how the Spanish film industry was run at the time. I don't know that for sure. But, but even for something as well known as Tombs of the Blind Dead... It's extremely hard to find the Spanish version. I had to go on YouTube and find it. Hopefully that's remedied soon by the supposed 4K release. But either way, if you can find these, I urge you to check out 
at least the ones that I was pretty high on here. Um, hopefully one day someone with pull at a label will start going down this list and give them proper releases. I can just hope that. And we see so much obscure stuff kind of dredged up all the time. Um, I'll go back to last year. We had an Angel for Satan, which was a pretty much lost Barbara Steele film from the 60s. And we got a good release of that. So there's still hope for all these labels to get in there and do some work. I mean, they're uncovering obscure things every day to release to the public. And weirdos like me will buy it. So as I have done in closing with a lot of my episodes, I'm going to give you this time the top six films that I would recommend from this batch. These are my favorite six. Um, we'll start with number six, and I started at six because five and six are kind of a tie, but it's a tie between um, Inquisition and Panic Beats. So both Paul Nashi directed films. Um, and then four is Night of the Werewolf, which I think that's the best Nashi film that I have seen. I still have a few more to go, but I don't think anything is going to beat that one. So those three Nashi films, absolutely check those out. Number three was Satan's Blood, which I just talked about. Again, you're kind of blind buying, but if you like this kind of sleazy, supernatural 70s horror, definitely worth buying, I would say. That's probably the only one here that I would recommend you run out and buy of the ones that don't have good streaming options. Number two is Bloody Moon. Again, really good, and already, even though it's a Spanish film, kind of moves up my slasher list. So... If you're a big slasher fan, which I know a lot of people are, check out Bloody Moon. And number one is Horror Express. This is a much more well-known film. It's a bit of an out, but I just love Horror Express. And it doesn't hurt that we have Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing in there. Uh, we have Sylvia Tortosa. We have Bleeding Eyes. It's just a really good film. So there you are. Please check those out if you're interested at all. With that, I'm going to close the book on the rise of Euro horror. But don't fret. This won't be the last time I touch on European horror from this time period. There are still many creators and topics to touch on, especially one of my very favorite subgenres, which I've said very little about over the past couple of months. And if you kind of go back and listen to the episodes, you can probably tell which one I'm talking about from this time period. This is a little bit of a different format for this episode. I wanted to find an interesting way to talk about early Spanish horror and tell the story of their troubled film industry at the same time. Um, like I've said in a previous episode, I want some of these chapter chapters to feel like variety shows where you're getting a different format each episode. So please, it's very important you tell me, you know, what you like the best. If you like it all, if you like the variety that we do. But if you want to hear anything in particular, um, as far as format goes, just let me know. Whether you liked it or not, um, I'd love to hear from you again. This one I focused a lot on mini-reviews, and if you really like that, I might do this kind of mini-review onslaught in future episodes. I'm not going to do it all the time because it took up a lot of time to get ready for this episode, but I'm always trying to change the format and keep things interesting as this show continues on. On my next planned episode, and hopefully this works out this way, um, I'll be sitting down with Jay of the Dead to start a chapter on early horror movie remakes. Uh, we'll be covering specifically the Invasion of the Body Snatcher movies, and that is 56 and 78, and the Blob movies, and that is um, 58 and 88, I think. That's going to be a very short chapter. I'm going to let you know right now. I'll probably only do a couple episodes on it. I just want to cover some of those early film remakes, and Jay and I are going to stack those up against each other. Again, that's the plan. Things are subject to change. Things are a little crazy here around the Whetstone household right now having a little bit of trouble recording with people. 
and I'm probably going to be on my own for the main episodes for the foreseeable future. Now, I have some bonus episodes that I talked about in my year in review episode that I am in the planning stages of setting those out. Um, I've been in contact with several people, but those might be on hold a little bit until I can get things sorted out around here. Just want to be transparent, um, but I've got some great guest lined up eventually when I can get to it. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to talk to all those people about the different years in horror that'll be like you know picking a year going through giving your top 10 list so on and so forth and i think those are going to be a lot of fun once i can get to those so rest assured there's some cool stuff coming down the pipeline as soon as i get things figured out around here with that being said let's close chapter two in the meantime you can head over to twitter and follow the podcast at screaming ages you can send an email to me at screaming through the ages at yahoo.com and I also have a website, which is kind of broken right now, trying to figure that out. But you can still listen on the main pages to all of my previous episodes, and it will house all future episodes as well. So that's another place you can kind of find the show if you're not a fan of traditional podcast services. Speaking of podcast services, I would really appreciate it if you would take the time, if you're enjoying the show, to leave a review on any of your favorite podcast service, whichever one you listen on. It always helps. And tell your friends if you're enjoying it. If you have someone in your life you think enjoys horror movies and these kind of discussions around them, then let them know. Um, I do know that this is kind of a niche podcast. We're talking about niche films. Not always talking about the heavy hitters or anything like that. But we're going to stay true to that and talking about the history no matter what. So might be some more recognizable films coming up in the future. But the history is always going to be the main driving force here. I think that's about it for the wrap-up today. I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening and all the support I've had throughout this chapter in the last couple months. Until next time, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs>